Welcome to The Lowdown, KMXT's new daily show dedicated to giving you the up-to-date information we have available on the COVID-19 outbreak and how it's impacting life on Kodiak Island. The Lowdown will focus on the facts as provided to us by local and state officials. During the show, we give you access to local officials and experts on COVID-19 and community actions related to it. If you have questions for our guests, please email them to lowdown at kmxt.org or call KMXT at 486-3181. You can find a list of upcoming guests on our Facebook page or on our website, kmxt.org. Audio from each day's program will be posted on the website. Morning. It's Wednesday. That means it's time for Doc of the Rock version of the lowdown. There's a lot happening, a lot to talk about, so we're going to jump right in. Again, if it's something on your mind in regards to COVID that you think our medical community can help help answer, uh, please give us a call, 486-3181, or shoot us an email at lowdown at kmxd.org, and we'll try and get your question answered by the end of the show. Uh, in the studio again, we have Dr. Steve Smith from Providence, Dr. Shanna Theobald from the Kodiak Island Ambulatory Care Clinic, uh, Elsa DeHart from Public Health, and Dr. Curtis Mortensen from Canna, who's on the line. KCAC. Yeah, right. Sorry, Curtis. <laughs> I'm taking advantage of you because you're not here today, I guess. <laughs> morning, all. Good morning. Good morning. 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 Um, let's start. Um there sure is a lot of cases coming out seemingly every day. The report from Dillingham yesterday particularly uh, troubling. Uh, so, Dr. Theobald, uh, let's talk first about you had a chance to listen in on the uh, ECHO program last night with Dr. Zink. Can you give us an update sort of on what's going on statewide? Yeah, basically last night's ECHO, which is kind of all of the state healthcare providers Zoom conference together and talk about the latest updates for the state with Dr. Zink, our chief medical officer, kind of leading that group. And uh, last night we covered a case study, which was a really interesting case of a traveler who came from South Korea to fish. And then um, the mandates, the travel mandates for intrastate and then out-of-state travel, which I believe are 10 and 18, especially for healthcare providers, given that you know we're gonna be the highest risk for exposure and we wanna protect everybody that we see in our communities. And yeah, I was just kind of going over the health mandates and explaining kind of what they are, when we need to get tested. You know, there's that three-day period of testing. You get that done, you need to kind of self-isolate, try to do as much telemedicine or no, no contact with patients until seven to 14 days, and then you can get a test in that time period. And as long as those are negative, then you're okay to, or as long as those do not detect virus at that time, <laughs> you are okay to see patients, obviously continue with the same precautions, washing our hands, wearing the mask, you know, protecting ourselves. And then another big study, they went over uh, the Lancet, which is a big medical journal, just released a review looking at masks, eye protection, and social distancing from all of the studies worldwide that have been done so far, China, Thailand, Germany, the United States, and kind of looked at what the outcome of these protective measures and how much they really do protect people. And of course, each one of those does confer a significant benefit it's not perfect. None of these measures are perfect, but doing something is better than, you know, just not doing anything at all. Right. So is there is there fear? Is there 
throughout the medical community now? Or what, what kind of a responses are, are you hearing? I mean, what what's the pulse in the room? Well, I think that as medical providers, we're, we have two concerns. Number one, to keep our patients safe, and number one, to keep ourselves and our staff safe. And that's, um, at least in the hospital, in the ER, we, you know, if we have any patients where we're in an N95, an eye protection, um, pretty much every, well, everybody works there, wears scrubs now, they change them out, they don't wear their home clothing, and so they change in a different room. So we're you know, not only are we keeping patients safe, but we're trying to keep our staff safe because we're a limited resource. If, if any one of us gets test positive or even becomes symptomatic, it has a, a, a big impact on our ability to provide health care in this community. And I, and I think the clinics are, you know, in the same situation. They're really um, taking it seriously on how to protect their staff. <coughs> So do you sense that there's a sense of heightened alert in the in the clinics and in the hospital now or are are you seeing some um, you know lethargy I think we're just maintaining a level of alertness we've kind of we're kind of in that yellow category where we're not on super high alert which is really stressful but we're cognizant that we have to be um, taking precautions at all times well is it a good indicator that we're still at seven now i mean it surely went up to seven pretty quickly but we could kind of almost anticipate that seven was going to quickly turn to 12 by this time from what happened by friday well, and I think we've, uh, you know, the cases that we've had, we've been able to isolate pretty well um, and not have a lot of transmission. So, so far, we've, knock on wood, we've we've done pretty well. But, you know, it's they're out there. I mean, mm -hmm. we've had some community transmission that we don't know where it came from. So, um, we know it's out there. So, are we doing more tests now? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. It, mm -hmm. um, I, the number this morning was uh, huge. It's like. I think we're up to, we're getting really close to 2,000. I think we're at 1,800 and something. So we're doing a lot of tests. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a hard judgment when the test, you know, if you look on the testing map, you can see how many tests on the DHSS website. You can see how many tests have been done in all these communities. And it's kind of misleading because it'll show like 55% of Nome has been tested, but it's only because certain people have been tested multiple times, you know, right. so it's a little bit... Uh, um, but we are testing, and there's been big lines, and people are paying a lot more attention. There's been big lines at the at, clinics? Up at the, up, at e, up at the testing site and places to get tested. And I know the phones have been blowing up at the clinics with people wanting to get tested. Mm -hmm. yeah. We're yeah. testing a lot more this last week yeah. or two weeks. Right. Are, are they just walk-in clients? Are they people on demand? Are these, you're seeing airline traffic come in? All of the above. All of the above. Yeah, and then a lot of times, you know, people come in for something, and we have that little screener questionnaire, mm -hmm. and if they say, po you know, they, they have any of the symptoms, even if it's just a mild congestion or allergy symptoms, a lot of people are like, I have such bad allergies. I have this every year, and we're like, we're testing you anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that a lot of can, a, a lot of this can be, like, attributed the, the the decreased rise is, is from the increase the, the ability to test so aggressively is it really benefits us yeah. and 
um, especially these people that are coming in from outside. Um, so we're catching a lot of these cases and then the excellent job that our uh, contact tracers are doing. You know, they. It, I think that just in Alaska in general, we've been able to contact trace effectively and so many areas, the numbers are so big, they haven't been able to do that. And then by the time it gets to that point, then you're kind of a little bit in a bad spot. Yeah. So have you been put in a, a situation where contact tracing in town based on the cases we've already had has been difficult? Well, yeah, I mean, we did have, we've had, most of them we've been able to pretty much figure out, but you know, there have been, yeah, there's been community transmission where we can't identify it at all. And the person has only been out shopping or getting takeout or doing whatever there's nothing specific no big groups nothing you know that that we can absolutely identify although Alaska is doing we're, we're working on a program right now a software program and it's the same program that they've been using in California New York and they really had to adapt it for us because we're so much more aggressive than other places are with our tra contact tracing we're able to do that and so far can, can we break down the Lancet report a little bit as far as the specifics of the little things that you do? We consistently keep hearing from people that masks don't work or if you do something to a mask, it might be uh, better than the cloth mask most people are walking around with. Um, so one, masks work. Yes. Yes. They Even, decrease, you know, like we were talking earlier, it's, it's on a gradient. It's not 100%, you know, it's not black or white, 100% there's 0%. There's that whole gradient in the middle and the more careful, you know, the, the better construction of masks. So an N95 filters 95% of particles that are smaller than the virus. And then there are the masks in the middle range, which are your cloth masks. And the more layers, basically, the more filtration that you're gonna have. And then there's the surgical masks or like the thin, cotton masks, which are still better than nothing. I mean, imagine, you know, a net, something getting through the net, the more lines there are to stop that particle, the better chance that you're not going to get an exposure. Is it perfect? No. Like Dr. Zink was saying last night, a lot of these, the mandates, the masks, the measures that we're implementing are like holy mosquito nets. They're going to keep out a lot, but they're not 100% perfect. But it definitely, and so the review, the Lancet review, looked at you know studies from all different countries and all the different settings and it is there was a clear benefit from wearing the masks and at least being three to six feet apart the farther apart it's the same gradient the the viral particles that are suspended in droplets fall out of the air and the farther you know they have to travel the less number of particles you're going to have in the air at six feet than three feet than zero feet so it's kind of and then same thing, eye protection, they said there was a small benefit that they could see from the eye protection just because, you know, it's another mucous membrane that if you touch your eyes, that virus mm -hmm. can get into your whole respiratory tract system from there as well. So So what are you talking about, like goggles, construction goggles? Even just glasses are helpful. And then in the hospital, we wear, you know, when you're... Face shields. Yeah, face shields. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Goggles huh. are helpful. Anything that kind of protects you from touching your eyes inadvertently can help. Well, you know, in the hospital and in the clinics, we're in a much closer contact with people. So we have to go to that higher level of that. We're not six feet away from most patients. Yeah. We're, at some point, your physical distance may be only be a foot or so just to, to examine a patient. So in that case, you have to go to the face shield 
um, N95 type of protection. Um, you know, the imagery there of the mosquito net kind of leads me right into something you said earlier about the airport, Stephen, that, you know, you, you described the airport as Swiss cheese, you know, meaning Curtis is having breakfast, apparently. Or the kids. <laughs> <laughs> now he's going sideways. I mean, we have a lot of holes in the system, and and uh, it leads me to wonder, you know, why we have holes like that and how best we can plug them up. Well, I think most people want to do the right thing. I mean, I think that's what we have to realize is that and for instance, in the Anchorage airport um, last week, they, if you got off on an in-state flight, they routed you a different route than if you came off of a flight that was incoming from out of state. Uh, you know, and the people had to have their documentation or they got a voucher to go get a test downstairs. And, and I think, sure, there's, there's, if somebody wants to skirt the issue there and, and not get tested, they can do that without a lot of effort because uh, we're not, we don't police everybody. We don't mark you and go, okay, you have your documentation, you get a, or you don't have it, you get a red mark, you got to go this way. I mean, we're not, we're not to that point. Um, but I think most people are, what I observed was they're wearing their mask. Um, you know, the airplanes require you to wear it on board. Um, or they'll just not let you there. Um, a lot of people, though, take it off as soon as they get off the airplane. I think even Jones last week made a good analogy about the policeman who goes to work and puts on his um, Kevlar vest. It doesn't protect him from all gunshots that might be fired at them, but it's a good protection, and that's kind of what the mask is doing. Is it? You're right. It isn't a perfect protection but it's better than nothing and why wouldn't you wear it to protect yourself well because the 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 line is that the mask is there for the other people uh true but it it will also if somebody's it'll protect you from some of the large droplets yeah so it's you're right you're, you're really there to help other people but it does provide you some degree of protection um can I can I add something to that? Sure. Am I am I still on here? Sorry, I, I may have I may have missed this, but I was uh, absent there for a second. But um, the uh, the other thing is just wearing the mask properly. Um, yes. You know, I think that you know we've all seen the people that you know have basically their their it's like down below their nose and you know like so you, you do have to wear like the fit of the mask does make a difference. And I mean we we stress that in with the. When you wear an N95, you have to actually have to get tested, fit mm -hmm. tested, where they make sure that the mask actually seals to your face. Um, but to, but even to a, a certain degree, like even when you're wearing a cotton or uh, you know a medical grade uh, just mask, like having it fit well and making sure that it's covering your nose and covering your mouth <laughs> appropriately is is important. So yes, they looked at that in the Lancet as well, and it's basically from the bridge of your nose all the way below your chin and then, you know, out past your cheeks where it can contact the cheeks and create as much of a, the, the more of a seal it creates, the more effective it is. Which kind of gets to a little bit of a pet peeve I'm seeing is people are wearing bandanas. They're good for cops and robbers, 
but they're open on the bottom. They're not really providing a lot of, they're better than shooting straight out from your mouth and nose, but as um, Shannon said, they don't fit underneath um, as well as they should. So I'm not sure that's, it's better than nothing, but it's probably the least um, protective of all the devices that people are wearing. Yeah, I think, oh, I think it was like at ten percent. It helps around ten percent from a, another study that was done that wasn't quite as <coughs> inclusive as the um, Lancet Journal article. But bandanas do confer a small percentage of blocking the virus, and every little percentage we do is again, like you said, better than nothing. Yeah. But it is it is lower than a better fitting mask. So the. the not everybody's got access to an N95. Most people wear these cloth masks or a bandana, but there are ways. Is it, Do you recommend that people do things to stuff something in the cloth mask to make them more effective? Yes. The Lancet Journal did look at, you know, different types of cotton masks, and the more layers there are, they looked at some that were 12 to 16 layers thick, and I'm not, I didn't look at the specifics, but there are really good instructions online about what to you know, put in your masks. Um, so the more filter filtration layers there are, the more likely it is to stop that virus. Is and it from coming out of you or for something coming into you? Really, it's both ways. Oh. But coming out of you is, you know, the most, I think, important from a community standpoint. But again, like if someone coughed in the air and you walk into that airspace and you have a mask on, you're much more likely to filter out those particles than if, or droplets than if you don't have that mask right. on. That's both, but more for the other people. So again, how do you how do you clean these things, and how often do you need to clean them? So, day. I mean, heat heating is the best way mm -hmm. to maintain the integrity of the mask, and it's really 130 degrees for I think about an hour, or 140 degrees for a half an hour, and those are dehydration temperatures. So they're not going to damage most of the integrity and they're not going to melt the or like make the elastic so that it doesn't work anymore um there is ultraviolet light but that kind of degrades the quality of the mask over time mm -hmm. and then any other like bleach you know hydrogen peroxide any kind of chemicals also kind of dissolve some of the mask particles so heating is the best way according to the state guidelines um from a few weeks ago and then i i decontaminate mine daily i go home and put it in the oven try not to touch anything and then bleach all the surfaces that I touch once I get home. So, And you can, the face masks, the cloth ones, you can wash in your washer and dryer. Dryer, you know? yes. And then the dryer, that good hot dryer um, will yes. take care of them. Too. Most dryers yeah. reach 130 to 140 right. degrees. So any clothes, any scrubs, any, mm -hmm. you know, thing that you think might have gotten exposed that you can put in the dryer should deactivate it completely kill off right. that virus. And that's so she's talking more about the disposable masks or the pa you know the, yes. the medical masks that we're using. So is there is there a need to decontaminate clothing too? I mean because it's it's droplet transmitted, you know, but there was some indication before that you know it could be passed on surfaces. Do people that are in a high traffic areas or things, do you decontaminate clothing mm -hmm. as part of normal medical procedures and does the Washing regular the Joe have to do it? That's, yeah, that's for me coming home from clinic after, you know, we've tested several people in a day. Mm -hmm. As far as the regular person, I mean, in Italy, they had recommendations that, you know, take off your shoes, kind of try to decontaminate everything in your entryway. Um, but I'm not sure how much 
how effective that and really a lot of is the more the recent studies ha showed that you know they had that first study out that you know it lives on cardboard for so long and it lives on this net but there's usually not enough living that it's really going to make you ill exactly. so so that being transmitted through fabrics and things is is much more minimal than yes than most things yeah i think the risk versus benefit it's probably yeah a lot of work and not going to protect you much more also is there public health information you know are you part since there we seem to have these spikes going on throughout the state is there more of an alertness on the part of the public health community well the public health is really working hard and trying to get the message out but what we're seeing is a lot of um big gatherings and we're just seeing tons of people coming out and workplaces but a lot of gatherings, you know, that it started, the big spike started pretty much after a lot of people really had a good time in Homer mm -hmm. over Memorial Day. And we saw huge ones. We're seeing big spikes in churches. Um, several churches have had like big gatherings and funerals where it's just like kind of the third generation now where somebody came that was sick and gave it to a bunch of people. And now all those people have given it to another bunch of people. So we're having big outbreaks that way. So it, it's it's um, it's a struggle just because there is people are tired of mm -hmm. tired of being quarantined or staying away and staying home and they're just kind of throwing caution to the wind. So yeah, we're seeing we're seeing a lot um, of cases. Let's talk a little bit about blood types, you know, because there's been a lot of information out in the in the in the community now about the the. the maybe the fact that people who really come down with severe symptoms of COVID um, have a certain blood type and they're more prone to getting seriously ill and others are um, not. Have you, you've seen that research, right? Yes. Yeah, basically. We're all looking to Curtis to weigh in. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can, uh, I can comment on it. I, I can't say that I'm as familiar with the studies as, as I'd like to be, but um, you know, I think that with data like this, we have to say that it's, we have to name it for what it is. There seems to be a correlation between, there seems to be somewhat of a correlation which would indicate that there might be a protective effect of certain blood types. But um, that doesn't mean I would recommend that it, somebody within certain blood type can kind of just throw caution to the wind and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm protected. Um, First, for two reasons. One is because we don't really know. This is a correlation, not a causation, uh, necessarily. But then also the other thing is is that, you know, again, we're trying to protect. Um, it's it's not all about the person in question. It's also about who they're coming in contact with. And so we know there's been really good. There's really good data out there that shows that um, you know people with cardiovascular disease, people with diabetes, with chronic lung disease, are many many times greater more likely to have um complications or death from this disease and so um and yeah, i'd put age in there too greater than 65. i, I knew you the, were gonna say well thank you last <laughs> week it was 60 so thanks <laughs> How old? yeah so so i think that the blood type thing is interesting and and certainly warrants more research but I, I don't i don't think that that's necessarily you know a reason you can say like hey i'm i'm immune to this thing i can just do what i want because i think that your um First of all, we don't know about you, and then also, you know, think about the protecting of, of other people in, in your family or community, because I think most of us know someone with one of those diseases. Yeah. 
Well, let's get down in the, little, in the weeds a little bit, though. For those of us who are not that familiar with blood, you know, what, what, are, what does the distinguishing characteristics of someone with A blood, B blood, O blood, and then, you know, the pluses and the minuses that come with that, how does that work in, in relation to things attacking us? You know, isn't it, it, there's positive proteins and there's, isn't it the fact A is a, like an, an antigen a, that, that's. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, I mean, I think so. Yeah. I, I guess I, I can speak a little bit to that. Um, so yeah, like your blood cells have certain um, proteins on them that are identified and we've identified those as, as A or B. Um, and uh, there's actually many other things that are represent uh we think about the what the rh and antigen to uh for people that are pregnant we think about that but there's there's many different these things i don't generally think of those things the the interesting part about that is and i'm not an uh immunologist but i don't just generally think of those things as things that would set some up for be for being either more uh uh prone to getting an infection or not we do think about it when we give donations of blood because that's where you can get these really bad reactions when you, if you cross-react one uh, type of blood with another. Um, so this is a little bit, I, I think, I would say that's a little bit unusual. I, it's not something that I've really done a whole lot of, of, of thinking about. Of if somebody has a certain blood type, that they'd be more uh, predisposed to a certain infection. I'm not sure if this is something they've done with other infections as well, but um, that's not something I'm too familiar with, actually. Yeah, I agree. It's, everything I've read so far... <laughs> It says it's an interesting finding, but there's not, you know, we don't know why. And then the clinical, it, there's probably, there might not be any clinical significance of that finding, but it is interesting that people with type O negative tend to develop less severe illness from COVID-19. They still, I don't know about infection rates, you know, for blood type, but just less severe illness is the study that I read. Or the well, I guess this, this got me to thinking about how the antibody test works and whether or not the convalescent plasma has has not become more prevalent. You know what I mean? I mean, if people have already gone through this and survived and developed the, the neutralizing, um, you know... Yeah. You know what I mean? When you have it, there's presence of a, of a virus in your system. But if you're able to fight the virus, that's what they're looking for when they're going to inject you with convalescent plasma to be able to fight it off, like a, almost like a vaccine, right? Yeah. Yep. Giving yeah. people antibodies. So, so actually, Mike, can I like so? I, again, I don't want to. I, I have a tendency to go into more detail than probably I should. So I don't want to make this an immunology lesson of sorts. But like, so the antigen on our blood cells that make it an a type blood cell is is just a protein in your body and if you are an a blood type and you have the this this protein on your on your blood your body recognizes that as its own but if you give that type of blood to someone who is a different blood type then they can react against it like it, they can they can ha develop antibodies against that different blood type so the the antigen is the name for the protein and in in the case and, and then the antibody is this um you know biochemical a way for your body to attack any that specific antigen so in the case of covid the actual virus itself is the antigen okay 
And the antibodies in someone with convalescent plasma is because they've developed antibodies against that particular, um, you know, because they've already developed the antibodies against that virus, which is the, the viral antigen. And so the, we're talking about two different types of antigens. There's the COVID-19, like the antigen you, you get for having the virus, and then the antigen that's on your blood types that we all have for our different respective blood types. And so they're kind of two separate things. And I don't know how they go together. Like, uh, you know, we're trying to solve that puzzle. But it's it, like I said, this is kind of a random, a little seemingly a little bit of a random like finding where it's correlated, where certain blood types are correlated with less severe disease. Gotcha. Does that does that make sense? I, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not. It, it helped a little bit. We could talk about it for another hour. <laughs> That's why you went to school for this. <laughs> um, I have a question um, in regards to uh, a questioner from a listener. If I were to become infected with COVID-19 and become hospitalized, what treatments would be given to me at the hospital, supportive and medications? So I think um, I'll work on that question it kind of depends where you're at in the infectious process you have to remember that a lot of people who test positive are have minimal symptoms um, and if if you test positive it, it so it's going to be in in stages so if you're positive for coronavirus and you have what are considered mild symptoms and you're in the mild category but you need um some supplemental oxygen, a small amount, less than six liters. We have some criteria. That individual in years past, because maybe they had asthma or something and, and they needed supplemental oxygen, we would have admitted them to the general hospital bed. Now we have to save those beds for more critically ill patients. And so if somebody has mild symptoms and they need some mild treatment basically supplemental oxygen they would go to our alternate care site which is at North Star they would be monitored they would give be given oxygen and if they require if they then became more ill they would come to the hospital and depending on what their respiratory cardiac status you know if, if they were not requiring a lot of additional treatment maybe some nebulizers, um, breathing treatments, but not deteriorating more, we could handle them here in Kodiak. They would be in a negative pressure room. Obviously, if they're um, becoming more critically ill, then we would uh, transfer those patients up to, in this case, Anchorage, to one of the three hospitals or what are called tertiary care, where they have much more advanced treatment capabilities um, and we would do that pretty quick if somebody's showing signs that they're getting worse we're not going to wait around and go well I think we can do it and we're we do have the advantage now with life med generally on the ground that even if weather's a factor the plane can usually get off so it, it just kind of depends on where you're at in the illness stage that's brought you to the point where we would need to do more medical care than just isolate at home, monitor your symptoms. Now that we have cases in town, what's the follow-up care for somebody who comes in and tests positive? I mean, from a medical point of view, how much are you involved in um, 
in monitoring that person on kind of a daily basis or every couple of days to see how things are progressing and you know how what's the what's the time period if we even know it for somebody that starts to develop really serious symptoms well i can answer that just a little bit because that's part of public health's job is that we reach out to all those contacts and those cases um depending on you know whatever day almost daily so we're talking to them all the time and and depending on if they're just kind of feeling not too well we'll direct them towards primary care you know if they just need to talk to somebody and they're worried or they're having just some you know symptomatic things they want some help with if they're really having trouble breathing then they're going to go see steve yeah. um you know and so that's kind of where we are so we we follow them public health talks to them every day so um they are getting followed pretty carefully. The biggest worry with this illness is that people can deteriorate pretty quickly or their, their breathing can and they can not be getting enough oxygen to all their vital organs and that's, um, and not always know that as well because it's kind of, uh, that's kind of a peculiarity about this, about this virus. So are they pretty much isolated in a room then with a phone? Because I would imagine the person that's caring for them pretty much has to stay away from them. You mean, you mean when they're just in isolation because they're positive? Yeah. yeah, they're expected to stay at home. They're expected to stay in. If Hopefully they don't have anybody else living right there with them. If they do, they're expected to stay in like a bedroom or whatever, use a private bathroom if possible. If not, they have to tell everybody, kind of, I have to use the bathroom and then clean it all up when they're done. Um, so really they do need to stay. You know, some, some places it can be really, you know, a bed and nothing. <laughs> some places are pretty plush. I mean, they've been isolating people in the Captain Cook, which wouldn't be such a bad place to have to be isolated. Um, <laughs> so there's a variety, just depending. We just work with people to try and figure out how they can isolate, what their situation is, what they have available. So has anybody in our community then progressed to a point where you got concerned? Yeah, yeah, we have. And uh, um they haven't required hospitalization haven't. yet, but no, not, not but, yet. but this isn't like this isn't a walk in the park. You get it, and seven days later, you know, you recover. Some people, it is. I mean, some people really they have very minimal symptoms, you know. And I think that we're finding that a lot of people who are quote unquote asymptomatic are really just have very mild symptoms that they're not really recognizing, or they may be pre-symptomatic when they get that test and get ill subsequently. So, um, yeah, I mean, they can and. It, there's such a variety of what people are experiencing. So is there is there anybody in, the, I don't know how you can talk about this without identifying somebody. Do people have pre-existing conditions, the people who have had it already, and are the symptoms always related to some other condition as to severity? No, and I mean, these guys can answer that too, maybe better than I, but it seems like, you know, as we look at the big picture everywhere, that people who have had respiratory issues in the past, this is going to affect them more so because that that's a system that's already been stressed, you know, and when you look at, it kind of hits different people in different ways, as many, many illnesses do. But Well, let's talk about stress a little bit, you know, because we know that the stress causes a, an enormous amount of problems and a lot of diseases are specifically come out of somebody that's overstressed, right? If, if you're in a stress situation, are you more susceptible to this uh, creating a, long, a bigger problem for you? 
Well, stress takes yeah. a toll on the body always. Sure. You know, yeah. yeah, we do find that our immune systems drop when people are really stressed. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that's a stress is always a hard thing to quantify because, and, and so at least from the ER standpoint, I stress is the last thing on my list because I have a lot of other things that I have to worry about. But are you talking personally or the? <laughs> uh, well, you know, we won't go that. That's another two-hour topic. You know. Um, Tomorrow's the mental health day. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be calling in. <laughs> But, I, but uh, there's no doubt that stress affects your body's ability, and, and this is a stressful time. So I think that um, we've talked about that before. You have to do things to try and help your stress. Get outside, go for a walk, and, I, and you know, even as um, emphasized many times how lucky we are. We can go outside. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know the sun's out for a minute here but you can we can isolate away from other people go for a walk uh, all of which helps with your mental health there's there's no question about that um are there are there advancements since your office tends to deal with antibody are you the only one doing my antibody testing still i think dr johnson they're doing send out to LabCorp? Oh. All the clinics that I talk to, you know, I talk to most of the clinics, they're all doing it send out. You yeah. guys are the only one that have the rapid, the rapid. Um, screen. Yeah. But everybody's doing some. And, and we don't really even know what it means yet. Exactly. Yeah. And <laughs> so how accurate we're learning. it is. Yeah. And what, yeah, clinical significance it has. So are you doing more of that than you used to do? I think we're doing more of everything. We're probably doing more PCR tests now than we were before. And then, yeah, the antibody tests. The way we've been using our antibody test is if someone comes in and they are sure that they had symptoms of COVID earlier in the year or and or if they're coming from an area in the lower 48 where that had a high prevalence and, they, you know, they might have had symptoms. In fact, that's how one of our cases we did antibody testing that was positive and we did a piece we did the PCR test then to say well let's make sure you're not still shedding the virus because that antibody window is you know anywhere we're not exactly sure but anywhere from about a week and then the later antibodies come in about two weeks and then they can be in the system for depends on how long the early ones mm -hmm. fall off after several weeks and then the long-term ones can be there for life or at least many years we're not sure yet because it's a new virus yeah. but um so anyway that was one of the, so then we went ahead and did the pcr testing to make sure they're not shedding active live virus and have the antibodies at the same time and and that one was positive um so yeah basically we're we're trying to use the antibody just to gather more data about the prevalence or, or what our population has already seen but so again we don't know if that confers immunity or not so what what is the what is the number for that i mean of the all those antibody tests you've had what percentage of the population of, that you've tested are showing antibodies oh it's not very many i think mm -hmm. we've had three or four positive antibody tests so far out of 100, 150 maybe now. No, that's all right. It, and it's really interesting because the big studies show that they're more, it's more accurate to do antibody testing in places where there's more prevalence exactly. of disease because you just have more of a chance of really catching accurate yeah, Positive, stuff. predictive value. And even testing, you know, now there's a lot in the news about people testing and they're saying, well, the only reason we're having so many more positives is because we're doing more testing. But we're also having a whole lot more negatives. So, you know, it, 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 it's not just because we're, we're doing more testing. So it's, is it fair to kind of read an early read on this, is that we haven't even seen a wave yet? 
in Kodiak? Yeah. yeah. I think I think, I so. think yes. so here. Yeah. We've been really very lucky so yeah. far. Um, like Dr. Zink yeah. has been saying, we've pretty much been able to keep the lid on COVID-19 mm-hmm. all this time. I think Alaska ha- has done an incredible job of making sure people understand the virus and prevent it from spreading mm-hmm. into our smaller outlying communities. And yeah, because of that, I think we haven't really seen the full impact yet in but it's starting yes. to it's starting to move in. I it mean, is, and, and in Kodiak, we're only a little lucky because we have some great employers here. You know, who are bringing our fishing, but also because Kodiak's unusual compared to many of these other communities, where a, a you know higher per, a big percentage of our folk that work in our processing plants live here year round. So we're not importing the people like they are in other communities. So that's that's been a real help for us. Yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit about this versus the flu. You know, there's uh, kind of a lot of dialogue going on about, you know, this isn't any worse than the flu. It's really similar to the flu. If I get a flu shot, that can help protect me from getting the COVID. I mean, what what are the similarities and the differences between COVID and the flu? Well, we can first start by the influenza vaccine does not convey any protection against COVID. Um, I mean, we can lay that one to rest right there. But if you look at uh, influenza A is a serious illness for anybody who has risk factors, you know, advanced age above 65 or more, (laughs) but lung illness and that. And so influenza A um, is a significant illness and has um, a fairly high mortality rate when you look across our whole population. Um, But we can limit that with vaccinations i mean it the the which influenza viruses are coming up in the fall they they know there's patterns they know that and they they're ahead of they're already working on that vaccine but that's that's taken many many years of study and so now we have this new virus called coronavirus or covid-19 that we're learning about and so we don't the influenza doesn't convey protection to that. Um, both the coronavirus and fl- influenza virus can, if if you're that person who's going to get really ill from it, um, it can be pretty serious. And I think I think the other aspect to that is is that um, I mean, there's it, the studies that have been done and show that the. Uh, COVID-19 is, is probably a little bit more deadly than the influenza virus. Um, but it's, it's shown that it's quite a bit more contagious than the yes. uh, influenza virus. And then you add to that, that there's no herd immunity. What's, there's no immunity whatsoever to it um, in our community. I mean, Shanna just, just told us that there's been, there's so little antibody, uh, you know, um, prevalence in our, in our society or in our, in our community. Um, and then you add on top of that, the fact that it's, it seems to be kind of an indolent, like uh, it seems to be that, you know, there's, there's a lot of asymptomatic carriage of the virus, which just makes it really hard to track. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I think for all those reasons, it's, it's a real challenge. Um, yeah. And to follow up on that, the flu is primarily you know, transmissible during the contagion or during the symptomatic period. Whereas yeah. Dr. Mortensen was saying, 
you can transmit this virus and be completely right. asymptomatic right. and right. that that becomes trickier too and then if you just look at the fatality rates you know 30 to 60 60 plus thousand deaths from the flu each year and compared to the 120 100 almost 130,000 that we've already seen from coronavirus i think it's definitely more you know, we need to take this more seriously. And definitely we need to take the flu seriously too. Get your mm -hmm. flu vaccine. This is not mm -hmm. to minimize the other infectious right. diseases we already deal with. But I think, you know, comparing it, this is a new virus and there's a lot more to it that we're learning. And yeah, it's obviously it can affect communities really quickly when we're not careful as we've seen in New York and other countries. Yeah. And I think, you know, that if you want to take a look at, you know, you can look at um, sort of, history of influenza prior to vaccination you know i think you can kind of if, if you do mm -hmm. uh you know any sort of research on on kind of the history of that um you know this this seems to be um you know i guess i guess one thing that i, I hope that kind of comes out of this is, is sort of a renewed interest in in vaccinations and that they do work um and so i, I hope that um this if uh that that what comes out of this uh, pandemic is is partially that we increase our vaccination rates because I think that that's been shown to to decrease these um, these types of of infections. Has there been a decrease in our population of vaccinations for other things? Oh yeah, if, <laughs> I mean uh, we fight yes. it all the time. And, yes, um, as providers now, um, just trying to you know trying to keep our rates up. Our rates are pretty low. Is it is it still because there's fear of going to the clinic? Or no, I think there's a lot more fear of people feeling it's government intervention. It, they don't work. It's going that the immunization is going to cause more harm than the illness was. I mean, people haven't seen these horrible illnesses, and so they don't. Just like now, COVID. If we had some, if we had a vaccine out there, everybody when we had H1N1, everybody wanted it like right now. But when you're not seeing kids dying of measles mm -hmm. and dying of polio and in iron lungs, then then you don't really see necessarily see the harm of it and it's hard to take your little person in and have somebody stick them with a needle and they cry and you feel horrible you know um so it, it's hard somebody in this room is old enough to remember the pre why are you looking at me <laughs> <laughs> well so i trained when we did not have haemophilus influenza or the hib vaccine mm -hmm. and the strep pneumo vaccine for kids and I saw a lot of meningitis yep. in young infants and had to take care of them and sometimes tell parents your child's not going to live. So I'm old enough that that effect of not vaccinating, um, it, was, it was a godsend when we developed mm -hmm. those vaccines. And all of a sudden, wow, mm -hmm. my life was a lot easier. Mm -hmm. What did you do during the Spanish flu? <laughs> so so mike can i can i add something to treatment too like so it's it's interesting so you know obviously the the ounce of prevention is pounded cure you know and i think we've been on that that bandwagon with the masks and with the social distancing hand hygiene and then you know hopefully a vaccine eventually but there there you know in the past uh two weeks there's come out some things so uh and i'm not sure if this was covered last week but the hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, um, those those have the authorizations for those to be used for emergency use um, have been redacted at this point because they've been shown to cause more harm than good. And um, in fact, 
if people are on those medicines for other reasons before they come in with COVID, um, it's, it's recommended they actually be stopped um, because of the the what seems to be the adverse events of being on those. Mm -hmm. So that's one treatment that's kind of been um, sort of taken off the table. Um, there still is some promising data on this remdesivir, mm -hmm. um, but it's it's still early, and that's certainly under still under kind of the it's been approved by the FDA under emergency use authorization. Um, I don't think we actually have that on island though. I, I'm I'm pretty sure of it, but I I, I would ask Steve on that. Yeah, we um, do not, and in fact, there's not a lot of it even in Anchorage, and that's reserved for those very critically ill patients. Critically where, ill. Yep. You know, and then the. The last one is this convalescent plasma, which I think um, there is. So the blood bank in Alaska is, is working with Mayo Clinic to be able to provide that. But again, it's for critically ill patients. Um, it's not recommended for people that are kind of like have mild, uh, mild symptoms. So likely would be reserved for patients that would end up be going to Anchorage for like critical illness uh, at this point. So if, is treatment then for people who aren't critically or seriously ill just you? The same kind of treatment you'd have if you had the flu yeah. or a cold? Pretty much supportive, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yes. The biggest is getting people the oxygen they need. You know, exactly. it seems like the kind of in-between step that people can't get at home, right. you know, that people can't just take care of themselves. And we did talk last week, um, Curtis, too, about death and uh, death dexamethasone. 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 Yeah, the steroids. Also for critically ill people. And then proning. There's other, you know, interventions that they have when people are critically ill and obviously would be in Anchorage or at a higher level of care where they're on the vent and they'll put them face down on their stomach to kind of open, let the gravity open their lungs a little bit more. But that's, I mean, those are interventions when you're really sick. There's nothing left to do. Yeah, your oxygen stats yeah. are like 40%. <laughs> um, all right, I have a follow-up question on the antibody test. It's on the positive antibody test. How do you know it is the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 that shows up on the antibody test as opposed to uh, coronavirus that causes a cold? That's a great question. Um, so there are antibody tests that are, you know, sensitive to any coronavirus. The ones that are emergency approved by the FDA specifically for COVID-19 have the antigen from COVID-19, the specific proteins on the, the SARS coronavirus um, that are supposed to be in the material. And basically what, hap what, what it is is if someone has the antibody, they have the antigen impregnated in this little strip. And if somebody has the antibody, it's it sticks to that specific antigen. The question is, can it cross-react with other coronaviruses? I don't think we have enough information at this point to know 100% sure. So there is a possibility that some of those are, you know, the other coronaviruses that, the other, I think there's six other coronaviruses that existed. And then, um, yeah, yeah. It, the big thing is, I think at this point, we don't really know. I know University, I think it was of California, were doing some antibody testing just to see what immunity they have in their county. And they were trying to actually sort that out if, you know, which coronavirus antibodies people have. And I think they, it was really specific for COVID-19. Um, but I think some of the tests that have been emergency approved, they didn't really look at that very closely ahead of time. So. But this is, it seems like it's a work in progress. The, the, mm -hmm. the type yes. of antibody testing that we're doing, when it first got rolled out, there was a, a lot of suspect equipment that went out. Yes, you know? yeah, there was. Some um, has been recalled. <laughs> yeah, but you're, you guys don't have the one that got recalled. Um, I don't <laughs> think so. We, we have ones on the original FDA approval list. 
Um, and then, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't think any of that has been recalled yet. I think we'll, we'd get a we'd get a call. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's close today with a discussion about you know death rates, um, and you know because this came up a little earlier about how fortunate we are to be living here, and that the death rate in Alaska is way lower than it is in other places in the country. Is there, you know, speculation as to why that is just because we live in a more remote place and we're a younger population and we're more fit? Or we're just lucky? Or maybe it's because we're, we catch it early and so maybe interventions help. I, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but that would be my suspicion is we're, we haven't been overwhelmed, so we're not catching people who show up in the emergency room in the critical phase. I mean, we're monitoring people out in the community, and I think that's playing a big part is we're catching these people early, and there's definitely, um, if you get hypoxic or don't have enough oxygen to um, that, then it starts a spiral downhill. So I think maybe that's one of the reasons but but i don't know curtis or shannon or i think i, I think i have uh a few guesses uh none of this is 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 borne out with any sort of research but i i think that um i think one thing is we have because we were late to this game and we had testing earlier in our whole COVID process we've, we've been able to test more aggressively so perhaps we have a better sense of what our denominator are like mm -hmm. how many actual cases or how many actual cases we've had. And so maybe we are closer to what the death rate actually would be in other states. They weren't like in New York city. They have, they probably have no idea how many people actually had it because they just were so overwhelmed with it that they never got a very good denominator to be able to tell what their death rate was. Um, that's one, that's one thought. Um, uh, the other thought is we have not had huge outbreaks with exception of one kind of nursing home facility. You know, there's other states that have had these massive outbreaks in many, many nursing homes where they've had huge death rates, you know, where the death rate is like, you know, closer to coin flip than it is to 1%, you know. And, and so that really increases your numbers of, of, uh, of deaths per person that's infected when you have higher risk people getting infected. And then there is the whole thing within Alaska. We have just a younger population in general. And. Uh, and so I, I think that 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 certainly has has helped our cause as well. And then what public health has done with with aggressive testing and aggressive contact tracing, you know, we've caught a lot of these younger folks that are kind of coming into the state for different reasons. And we've isolated them. So then it hasn't gotten out to the general population as much in most areas of Alaska. And, and so that's really speaks to just the great job that um, sort of the communities are doing and the state has done in general. So I, I think. There's a lot of reasons, um, but those are some of them that stick out to me. Yeah. Other studies were talking about air quality, you know, in the cities where the air is more polluted, there seems to be a higher illness rate, but that's all, you know, is that correlation or cause and effect? It's hard to sure. sort that out because it's also increased population density. Right. That's it for today, huh? You're speechless. No, I'm not. I, I have a whole list of questions, but it's 10, 10 after 10, and I know you folks probably have to go back and do what you do, um, and everybody else does too. So another engaging discussion. I got some questions lined up for next week, so 
Thanks for coming in. I Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Let's Thank not you. see we don't see you before Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> Have a good day, everyone. Thanks for uh, joining us on the program today. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to The Lowdown here on KMXT Kodiak, 100.1 FM and HD. We're also streaming live on the web at kmxt.org.